You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Well, it seems like a distant memory, doesn't it? Last fall was an election. (laughs) And right after that election, the EFC did some national polls exploring voting patterns of, uh, of Canadians, but also what Canadians were thinking about the responses to the pandemic. And we asked questions about the public's perception about how the government responded to COVID and so on. But we, we found we were able to differentiate amongst our, our, those who are polled. We had about 5,000 people polled. And we found that amongst evangelicals, um, we are more likely to be divided than almost any other group. Is that something? So, for example, we asked people to respond to the following question. The danger posed by COVID-19 does not justify the limitations on personal freedoms Canadians have experienced over the last 18 months. 44% of evangelicals strongly or moderately disagreed with that. 53% strongly or uh, moderately agreed with that, and 3% just weren't sure. Or to the question, no one should be required to get a COVID-19 vaccine in order to keep the job. Evangelicals, 46% of evangelicals moderately or strongly or moderately disagreed. And 49% of evangelicals strongly or moderately agreed. And only 4% said they weren't sure. And when you compare that to the general population, only 33% strongly or moderately uh, disagreed. And so we found out that on, on many of these questions, evangelicals were most likely to be kind of a 50-50 split on these questions, even compared to the general, problem, uh, general public. I mean, these are divisive times, aren't they? But it's troubling how that public division has, has, sep- has really seeped into our churches. And I think this is shown not only in the polls, but it's been validated to me as I've, I and our, our leaders uh, at the FC have have had various conversations with pastors, denominational leaders, organizational leaders in the last months. Uh, it seems like our churches are not only struggling to get past the pandemic, they're just, they're just even struggling to get along with one another. And so this morning, we're going to be participating in the Lord's table. And, and it's vitally re- uh, important first to understand what this table represents, and I'll kind of give, give, show you my hand. It's a table of unity. <laughs> but, but, but as we uh, understand what this table is all about, we, we remember what, what uh, the table is sometimes called. In some traditions, it's called the Eucharist, which is a, comes from a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. And certainly, it is a table of thanksgiving for what God has done in Christ. In some traditions, like the Anabaptists or the Mennonites, they often call the meal a fellowship meal. Uh, and, that, and that's following the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he actually calls the, the breaking of the bread and the taking of the meal a, a participation or a fellowship in Christ, the, the Greek word koinonia, which you're probably familiar with. And I was raised in Onaway Evangelical Free Church up, up north of uh, Edmonton, and I remember as a kid, we always called it communion. I don't know what you call it here, but, but uh, we called it communion. And of course, communion means common union. It's a table of unity. And yet, isn't it sad and tragic how over the course of Christian history, the table and perhaps baptism, two of the most important ordinances or sacraments of the church, has probably caused more division amongst the church than almost anything else. 
We need to do better. In fact, there's probably no better place than at the table to represent visibly and concretely what the church is all about. We're, we're a people who are seeking to have others reconciled to God and being reconciled to our neighbor in and through the completed work of Jesus. Maybe, maybe we should just start calling it, for a season at least, a table of reconciliation to remind us of what it's about. Now, in the text that, that Jeremy read this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it, it gives us some of the most thorough instructions about the Lord's table that we have, and it's usually a key text whenever we celebrate it. And, and so though the Gospels recount where we got this practice, of course, it was the Lord himself who instituted it just before his death, this text, 1 Corinthians 11, gives us perhaps the clearest statement of why we celebrate it in the first place. But maybe before we go too far, we have to remind ourselves of a couple reasons why we don't celebrate it. Uh, the first one of it, uh, reasons why we don't celebrate the table is because we've already, we always have done it, okay? It's not sufficient for us simply to say, well, we've always done it, so well, let's just keep doing it. That's to make the table into a, a, a ritual, a mere ritual or a mere tradition. And there's a big difference, as, as one church historian put it, between tradition and traditionalism. Tradition, he says, is the living faith of the dead. And traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So, no, we don't celebrate it just because we've always done it. And even though most of us probably wouldn't say that outrightly, I think if we're honest, sometimes it kind of feels like that's kind of how we do it. We've just always done it. But that's not a good enough reason. Another reason why we don't do the table is to earn our salvation. If there's a danger in celebrating the table as a mere ritual, it's perhaps even more dangerous to approach the table as if it was a a meritorious work towards our salvation. And indeed, one of the reasons that the church has, has long restricted participation in the table to only believers is because we want to ensure that no one comes to the table thinking that if I just take these elements, that somehow I'll gain salvation in and through these elements. They're not a magical potion or a formula that, that just needs to be done and followed and therefore to earn our salvation. Suddenly, poof, we're Christians. But here's our problem. As we'll see in this passage that we're going to look at, uh, in seeking rightly to restrict some, who's supposed to be participating in the table, we've sometime, sometimes also done exactly what the Apostle Paul criticized the Corinthian believers for doing for allowing the table to become a table of division rather than a table of harmony and reconciliation. That there are some people who shouldn't participate in the table is, is clear. It's, it's not meant for those who don't profess Christ. But that seems to be about the only limit that's placed on it. So as we look at this passage, we, can, we, we can't look at every detail here there's a lot in this passage, and we're going to look more sort of on the bookends of the passage uh, and rather than the center part of the passage. But there's some really important things that we need to be reminded here that sometimes we, we pass over too quickly. 
If we jump to verses 18 to 20, near the beginning of this passage, we get these startling words from Paul. He says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul's basically saying, just because you go through the motions of taking a little bit of bread and drinking a little bit of juice together, even doing it in the name of Jesus, even in the midst of a church service, doesn't necessarily mean that we're taking the Lord's table, that we're partaking of the Lord's table. That's scary. So what do we have to do to, to ensure that as we participate in this, this uh, practice of the table, that we're doing it rightly and authentically? Well, first of all, the most obvious thing, Paul points out that there's a problem. We're coming to the table divided. In, the, in verse 18, he says, in the first place, I hear there's divisions among you, and I believe it. Now, when Paul says, in the first place, it's, it's kind of like he's saying, let's state the obvious. You're coming to the table of unity divided. Uh, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. But then he turns around and he says, okay, so that, that's important. We shouldn't be coming to the table divided. But then he turns around and he says, yes, I get that there would be divisions because there have to be factions among you so that you, those of you who, who are genuine may be recognized. Now, hold on here. Didn't he just say we're not supposed to have divisions? And now he's saying there has to be some kind of division, some kinds of factions. It sounds like he's talking out of two sides of his mouth. So, so what, what in the world is he really saying here? Well, I think it helps if we understand that Paul's using two very different words here in the text. He uses a word for division and for faction. The word for division in the Greek is, is schismata. It, and, and that's the word from which we get the word schism, you know, division. And, and schismata means divisions, or, 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 or as we'll see here shortly, uh, party lines. Party lines. And Paul's rhetoric is pretty clear here. He says in the church, there should be no schism. There should be no party lines in the church. But the second word here, translated as factions in the, in the Christian uh, uh, Standard Bible, or differences in the NIV, is the word heresis, heresis. And that's the word from which we get uh, heresy. And we'll look at that one in a, in a second. So what's the difference between these two words? The first word, schism, Paul uses in earlier in, first, in, in, uh, in the book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And there he says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions, no schismata, among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Now, Paul surely isn't saying that Christians have to agree on everything, right? <laughs> uh, I don't think that's possible. I don't think that would ever happen. Um, good luck with that. So, so what are the schisms of which he's forbidden? Forbidding. 
Well, he, he goes on in that first chapter, verses 12 and 13, and he, he kind of tells us what it means to, to, to be schismatic. And he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or for the really spiritual ones, I follow Christ. And, and Paul goes on and he says, yeah, but is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? In today's language, I think Paul's saying this. Quit lining up along party lines. Quit lining up along party lines. Now, I, I don't think Paul here is talking about our modern political party system that we have here in, in Canada. Although that could be one of the divisions that we find ourselves oddly trapped in, even as Christians. It's interesting that amongst our, our polling shows, that amongst evangelicals, we vote pretty much like the general public, with a slight preference to some of those right parties, okay? But, but overall, evangelicals, the general, look, look, the, our voting patterns look very much like the, the general uh, public. There's not that much difference. Um, but that means it would be really, really tragic if we were coming to the table divided amongst these political differences, as if somehow, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we couldn't partake together of the table because of our political allegiances. That would truly be a kind of schism. But it's telling, isn't it, that in the history of Protestantism and some of the first Protestant groups in the Reformation, they kind of became known by their founders, didn't they? There was Lutherans, and there was Calvinists, and there are Mennonites, for example. And those aren't political party divisions, but those, are, those ended up being a kind of party line, a theological party line. And eventually it, it, it caused the splintering of the Protestant movement into you know, thousands of denominations. Now, I'm not saying denominations are necessarily bad, but denominations are not a line in the sand by which we determine whether or not someone should be able to take the table. Unfortunately, that still happens, even today. And so we have to ask, are those in the other denominations not followers of Jesus? Are they not too truly followers of Jesus? Sure, we may disagree with them on some theological issues, but are they not too followers of Jesus? Surely this shouldn't be sufficient to prevent us from coming together at the table. But you know what? Those are really minor compared to what some of the other issues we're dealing with today. There's other party lines that are current right now in the evangelical church and the church broadly that are dividing us. These are the party lines that ask, okay, I'm afraid, but here goes. Are you pro or anti-vax? Which side do you line up on? Do you believe that our religious freedom has been overly and unnecessarily violated? Or do you have a sense that that we've done, we followed the government restrictions for love of neighbor and love of God. Or, or getting closer to home, and we hear these stories regularly at the EFC of how many churches and denominations right now are going through rifts 
because they are divided about how their leaders responded to the pandemic. Some saying they did a good job, some saying they did a poor job. And I have to say, I mean, I'm not that old. <laughs> I still consider myself a young guy, but I've been around long enough to, to tell you that I don't think I've ever seen in Canada more party-line thinking in the evangelical church that I'm seeing right now. And I think that's tragic. So that means Paul's words to us are, are really vital to us. If we come to the table divided on these issues and we refuse to recognize that these are not central to what brings us together at the table, then we're in danger of not participating in the table that Paul says we ought to. Now we have to turn quickly to the second word, this, this, this word heresis or heresy. The word heresis. Now Paul says on the one hand, he says, I hear there's schisms among you, but there shouldn't be. On the other hand, he says, I hear that there are factions, and, and there has to be. There has to be authentic factions amongst you. And what he, what he means by this is this word heresis. And both in the Bible and in, in, in church history, the word heresy refuse, re, refers not to false teaching per se, but to wrong beliefs within the Christian community itself. So things like Buddhism or secularism, atheism, naturalism, and however many other isms you want to name, these are not technically heresies. These are just unbelief, non-Christian non beliefs. They're not false teachings about the Christian faith. Rather, in the ancient church, heresy was false teachings pertaining particularly to the person of, of Christ and his work and to the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are the things. And, and there was teachings that did not properly align with the revelation of God in Scripture and, 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 and in Christ and his spirit. And eventually the church had to make a line in the sand that said, Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully divine. And these two, this human and the divine nature come together in one person in what, what theologians call the hypostatic union. And these come together permanently in one person. And to say otherwise is to say, is to be heretical. To say that Jesus is only a human. Or to say that Jesus is only one way amongst many as ways to salvation. This is heresy. And Paul says that we have to hold stand against. And that's why in the church we have teachers and pastors and theologians whose job it is from generation to generation to help us rightly understand the nature of who Jesus is, who our God is, and how it is that we uh, gain salvation. That's a division that we must maintain. And that's our job as leaders to do that. So yes, there has to be divisions amongst Christians versus unchristian belief or, or, or Christian heresies. But our divisions are not whether we're Calvinist or Lutheran, not whether we're pro or anti-vax, not whether we're conservative or liberal or NDP or green or however many other parties there are, not whether you're pro or anti Convoy. These are not categories that we should bring to the table of the Lord. This ought not 
to be, Paul says. Strong words. Well, he's going back to our text. As if to drive home his point, Paul says in verses 20 to 22, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's table that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. He says, what, do you have houses? Do you, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. Strong words again. So what's Paul getting at here? Well, here, here a little bit of background into the, the ancient first century Greco-Roman culture can be, happen, can be helpful because in Paul, there was sort of uh, different class distinctions. You had Roman citizens who had full rights, like Paul himself was a Roman citizen. And by the way, only men could be Roman citizens in Paul's day. But there were also Roman freeborn female citizens. They couldn't vote or non-Roman free men and free women. And, and of course, um, you had slaves and, and poor people. Each of these classes were socially isolated from one another. And I think what was going on in, in, in Corinth and the reports that he heard in Corinth were, were precisely about this, that the, the Corinthian Christians were bringing the class distinctions that were evident in society and bringing it into the meal. And so therefore the Roman men were having their own meal first and in the meantime they were eating it up so much and drinking it up so much that they ended up getting drunk and so much so that by the time the women and the slaves came there was nothing left for them and Paul has nothing good to say. Given these class distinctions Paul says that we ought not to bring the divisions that divide the larger society into the body of Christ. These are things that not, ought not to take place. These are not commendable. Well, today we might say, well, <laughs> we don't do that. Well, maybe not obviously. We don't check at the door, you know, whether someone's a citizen or a landed immigrant or a refugee before they can participate in the table. We don't see if they have a good job or if they're unemployed. I hope, I hope we don't do that. Um, but that doesn't mean this temptation that distinguishing is, 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 is not, is absent from us. Because I do fear that in some ways the church has been tempted and continues throughout the years and, and right now is tempted to divide in, this, in these kinds of ways along politically and socially determined lines. No, we don't check people for their nationality at the door, but you know, there was a real temptation, wasn't there, for a while to check whether they had another kind of passport. And, and, and I'm not saying that was an easy issue, but these divisions are not the divisions that should be brought to the body of Christ. Such divisions precisely opposite to the gospel of reconciliation, which we should be proclaiming. Better to come together in reconciliation and harmony than to come to the table socially, politically, and ethically divided in some kind of way along party lines. At the end of this important passage, in verses 33, I think it's in NIV, 
he puts it this way. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I think in the Christian Standard Bible, it says, welcome one another. What a beautiful way to put it. Wait for one another. So that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. Wait for one another. I think these, there's three things that we have to do in this waiting to authentically participate in the table of the Lord. And that is to wait for God, to wait for one another, and to wait on one another. And let me briefly unpack these three things. First, in the table, we wait for God. In verse 26, Paul reminds us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the table's a corporate remembrance of the, the, uh, that which has gone before us, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, his atoning work on the cross, the, the, uh, his forgiveness of sin, and his offer of reconciliation. But as Paul says, yes, it's for all of us, but it's a corporate act of waiting together for God's future redemption when Christ comes again. But of course, the, the power of a gathered table, both to remember what the Lord did in the past and to signal what we're hoping for him to do in the future is, is directly proportional to the extent to which we're unified today. Party line disagreements aside, we're not waiting for human leaders to save us. We're not waiting for political, activist, medical, legal, or even Christian leaders to come and save us. It's not as if these leaders are little messiahs. On the contrary, we wait together for one Lord Jesus Christ, the one Savior, the one Reconciler, the one King of Kings. This is so desperately needed in our current situation. If there's ever been a time and there's been many times throughout the history, but in recent memory, where the groanings of creation, the, 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 the political divisiveness, the international unsettledness, the war, the pandemic, all of these things remind us that this world waits for a Redeemer, for the Lord and Creator to set all things anew in the new heavens and the new earth for when He returns. Oh, if, if only the world saw that the church comes together to participate in the table and the world was able to say, here's a people that love, long for their coming Savior, Redeemer, and Reconciler. Second, in the table we wait for one another. These inspired instructions from Paul's pen give us an opportunity to ask, is there anyone I've left behind in order to come to this table of unity? Am I coming here ignoring a broken relationship? Paul reminds us of those well-known words, Wherever, whenever you eat the cup, and, uh, or eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so a person ought to examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
There's so much ink and so many sermons have been preached on what does it mean to take the wheel unworthily? What does it mean to examine ourselves? What does it mean to discern the body and blood of the Lord? And certainly we can all agree that at least part of that self-examination includes personal confession of perhaps unconfessed sins. But beyond that, discerning the body of the Lord means acknowledging that we do not come to the table alone. One of Paul's favorite metaphors of the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That means we can't eat of the table worthily if we're divided, unreconciled with our brother and sister. Better not to eat than to eat without seeking reconciliation with our brother and sister. Better to eat. Better not to eat with, than failing to seek reconciliation with those waiting to reconcile. Are we coming divided? Are we coming unreconciled? Or are we coming together? Third, in the table we wait on one another. Although the 1 Corinthians 11 text doesn't explicitly speak to this, we know from the Gospels that Jesus came not as one who came to be served, but to serve. He demonstrated this in washing his disciples' feet, and at the table he actually served as the host serving his disciples. And so too, the table is the place where we symbolically ought to be reminded that we serve not only the host, Jesus himself, but one another as participants in the table. And here, here we recall, even in the book of Acts, how, how deacons were called upon to wait on the tables, remembering that the word deacon means servant, means servant. And so at the table of the Lord, well, although there may be deacons or elders or pastors who are presiding, the table really represents a, tab a table of interdependent service one to another. In this small act of sharing equally around the table, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our social or economic class, no matter our gender, for we're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for we are all called to the high calling of being servants one to another. And so it's perhaps the epitome of the table in the ancient world that Roman citizens intermingled with slaves and men served women and Greeks served Jews, not because of their class or gender or ethnicity, but in spite of it. And the symbolism of the table is most powerful when we participate in it and then go our separate ways, carrying on the spirit of service one to another in the six days that follow today and Sunday. It's one thing to set aside 15 minutes to engage in the table. It's another to live our lives in service one to another in a way that the table represents. And so we come to the table today, waiting for God, waiting for one another, and waiting on one another. May the Lord be pleased with our hearts and our attitudes as we attend to his table today. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.